Today, uh, we are going to continue in a, a series in the book of Hebrews, and we're turning to chapter four today, and I'm just so glad that you're here today. This is, this is a good day. It's, it's, I'm glad that you're, you're with us this morning, and let's turn to Hebrews four, looking at verses one through 13. Let me read it. Therefore, while the promise of entering his rest still stands, let us fear lest any of you should seem to have fallen, failed to reach it. For good news came to us just as it did to them, but the message that they heard did not benefit them because they were not united by faith with those who listened. For we who have believed enter that rest, as he has said. As I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest, although his works were finished from the foundation of the world. For he has spoken some of... Uh, he, he has spoken, for he is somewhere spoken of the seventh day in this way, and God rested on the seventh day from all his works. And again, in this passage, he said, they shall not enter my rest. Since therefore it remains for some to enter it, and those who formerly received the good news failed to enter because of disobedience, again, he appoints a certain day, today, saying through David, so long afterward, in the words already quoted, today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. For if Joshua had given them rest, God would not have spoken of another day later on. So then, there remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God. For whoever has entered God's rest has also rested from his works, as God did from his own. Let us therefore strive to enter that rest so that no one may fall by the same sort of disobedience. For the word of God is living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and spirit, of joints and of marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. And no creature is hidden from his sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give an account. This is the word of the Lord. So the people to whom Hebrews was written are discouraged and struggling, and they're in danger from falling away from their faith in Jesus as Messiah. And so these are first century Christians. They're, they're of Jewish descent and background, and that's their history. And, and they've now looked to Jesus, and they are really getting close because of discouragement from, from walking away. And, and Hebrews calls out to them, don't do it. And he appeals to them in ways that we don't fully understand, not having grown up in the Old Testament and, and having the Hebrew Bible as our, as our, it is a part of our Bible, but frankly, I think most of us don't know it nearly as well. And so he's appealing through much of the Old Testament story that, that look, don't give up hope because there is a greater Moses, which we spoke of last week, and there's a greater Joshua. And Jesus is the greater Moses, and Jesus is the greater Joshua, and there's a greatest promised land, there's a greater rest, that while that original generation that failed to, to reach that rest because of disobedience, if you, he keeps referring to this from Psalm 95 and, and other parts of the Bible, the Old Testament as well, he's warning them, don't be like that generation that got out of slavery and was in the, in the time of wilderness, began to complain and rebel against God, and God did not allow them to enter the promised land. But this rest, this promised land that we're talking of in the book of Hebrews, he's saying, you can't miss this one. It's too good. So don't fall away. And so today we're talking about the issue of rest 
And not just physical rest, but instead deep soulish rest. And as we start, I want to read to us from the the Gospel of Matthew where Jesus beautifully says something. And I want to speak those words over you. Maybe even take a deep breath and begin to rest a little bit and hear these words from Jesus himself. Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I'll give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I'm gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Let's pray. Father, we rejoice with those who rejoice in baptism and life, and we mourn with those who mourn today in our family in our midst. And, oh God, whether we're celebrating today or mourning, would you fill us with your spirit and would you enable us to have a rest that we may walk out of these doors today feeling a, a, a greater sense of joy and rest and hope because your burden is light and your yoke is easy. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Well, we need rest so badly. And, and yet it is so elusive. We need peace of mind. We need calm. And it's so hard to find. Not just a nap. Some of you do. You need that bad. Like We have so many families with young kids and babies in this church. And I just see you walk in. You look like zombies. I'm like, oh, I'd love to just take your kid and let you nap for eight hours. But I'm not going to do it. Um, <laughs> Not just a nap, not just a vacation, not just a day off, not just a babysitter. You need deep rest, soulish rest. But how can we get it? And today, we have more strategies than ever to try to get calm in our life, to try to get uh, our, our anxiety down, to get rest, so to speak. We have so many strategies. We have therapy. We have books. We have podcasts. We have meditation. We have medication right? We have yoga. We even have goat yoga. Have you heard about goat yoga? I almost showed you a picture of this. This is real, you guys. I swear this is real. There's even some people in this church that have done it uh, because they've told me. Goat yoga is where you do yoga, but you do it with goats. And they step on you and they walk on you. And like, why? Why is that a thing? Can anyone please explain to me later why this is a thing? We have vacations. We have experiences galore. My goodness, do we have experiences. Um, my kids have already experienced, I feel like, way more in life than, than Becky and I have experienced in our, in our lives. Like, we have so many experiences. We have incredible amounts of entertainment. We have flexible work environments now more than ever. And we have wellness apps. And here we are, restless. And there's a huge emphasis today. Uh, we're so focused on getting rest and taking care of ourselves. There's a huge emphasis today called uh, self-care. And Charlotte Lieberman uh, wrote an article in the Harvard Business Review that I read this week called How Self-Care Became So Much Work. And in spite of the fact that we have all these, these strategies and all these ways to take care of ourselves, 
We can even turn something like self-care into self-criticism and just another chore. This is what she's talking about. She notes how we all need deep rest. We're not getting it. We all need to be taking better care of our bodies and our inner life, not just to be narcissists, but in order to like be a blessing to others. You have to, be, you have, to have something to give something away, right? And so that's the best use of self-care. But because we have so many competing values in this culture, many of which are not good, um, we have turned self-care into commerce, commerce and business, and it's just another work. It's just another chore, she says. It's becoming another way to keep score and to fail and to feel bad about yourself. Here's what she means. She writes, one of my clients recently told me her goal to start a meditation practice and it's short-circuited due to her tendency to turn everything, including self-care, into a chore. After trying out 20 minutes daily of routine, she found that meditation ultimately caused her more stress than it alleviated, when she, uh, which in turn made her just feel guilty and bad about herself because she wasn't keeping up with the practice that she said she was going to do. We turn even something like this because our hearts are so given over to this busyness and this lack of rest, even something as good as self-care, something that's like taking care of ourselves, we turn into just another work, just another chore, and we judge ourselves for it, and then we can't rest. Uh, Maybe like me, you got an Apple Watch or a Fitbit or something like that, and I I really was excited about getting this thing, and I have to be honest, it's been... It's been pretty great. <laughs> and it is great getting your steps noted, like how many steps you've done. And, and it's great being told how many calories you've burned and that kind of thing. And, and I do find it helpful. But what's interesting is uh, on the days we close our rings. So it gives you rings. These gives you these goals that you're supposed to accomplish, right? And if you stand for so many hours and walk so many steps and burn so many calories, then you've reached your goals. And on the days I close all three rings, it like goes, yay. It literally celebrates and like does a little, little uh, like firework display and says, you reached your goals. And I feel like I'm a good person today, you know? <laughs> and on the days, then there's other days where it, it like starts talking to me and says like, hey, Chubby, you know what? <laughs> You've only stepped to like the, the refrigerator and back to the couch today. You know, like, what are you doing? So how do you feel when, when your watch tells you bad stuff about yourself? What do you, how do you feel? What do you do when you don't journal in your self-care, when you don't light your candle, when you don't do your meditation or your yoga or whatever your thing is, or even your goat yoga? It, it, what do you do when you don't get your steps in? Where do you go? Well, today, I hope us to see the glory of the rest and the Sabbath that Jesus is and promises us even more in the future. So today, the types of rest, we're going to have two points, the types of rest and the tempest of rest, the types of rest and the tempest of rest. First, the types of rest. So if you haven't noticed, Hebrews can be hard to track with. In fact, it's hard to even read. <laughs> like, I, I stumbled over it several times, you might have noticed. Like, it's a, it's a, it is a weighty book. One of the reasons we know that Paul most likely did not write the, uh, this book, even though some people have, have said he did, is because of the complexity of the language that the author of Hebrew uses. And it's so dense, especially in the original language, let alone the English language. It's hard to follow. But this passage 
is particularly difficult to follow because he keeps talking about the word rest, but he's using it 10 different times in this section, but he's using it in three different ways, at least three different ways, and some could argue four. The word he uses in Greek for rest is katapausis. Uh, sounds like cat paws, but it, I want you to hear the root in there, which is pauses, which is like our word pause, right? And so in a sense, rest in this original word is meant to imply pausing, ceasing, stopping. And the first use, because there's three different uses in this passage of this word, is for the promised land. He's talking about the promised land. The first use in our passage referring to the Canaan land, to the, to the promised land. God redeemed the people from slavery in Egypt. He took them into the wilderness and ultimately into the land that God had promised Abraham thousands of years earlier. Now, the first usage of rest in our passage, recalling uh, this original generation that I mentioned that came out of slavery and they grumbled and they complained. We look at this last week against God and God did not allow them to enter into the promised land or what he's calling the rest, the rest. There's a second use, which is God's own resting. In Hebrews 4.4, we just read it, but it says, For he has somewhere spoken of the seventh day in this way, and God rested on the seventh day from all his works, from Genesis 2. And God blessed that day. So in Genesis 2, we read about how God rested from his creational work on the seventh day, blessing that day. And we know, you know that God doesn't have to take a day off, right? God does not need rest. God never ceases. God never stops. He doesn't sleep or slumber or take a break, and he doesn't have to. So what does it mean that God rested on the seventh day? Well, most most scholars would say the reason that it's described that way on the seventh day is because God is like an artist who just created something profound, and after he created the entire universe, he stepped back from his creational work, and he declared it good. He was satisfied. He ceased from his work and he took enjoyment in what he had created. It's like an artist, like a painter who is painting a beautiful work and she just labors over it, works over it, works over it and doesn't cease working on it until there's a time where she stops and says, yes, that's good. It's complete. It's whole. And she stops and pauses and rests. But really what God was doing by resting for us, and and we learn this throughout the Old Testament and the New was establishing a creational pattern for humanity that you should work for six days, but on the seventh day, stop and rest. It made it into the top 10 commandments that God gave Moses, the fourth commandment. You shall not work, not you, not your wife, not your kids, not your servants, not even your animals can work on the Sabbath. Everyone gets a day off. And this is beautiful. And in fact, in many ways, it's not only regulating, it's celebrating. It's a declaration of freedom for the people of Israel who were enslaved in Israel. And then God brings them out and says, you're not just beasts of burden. You're free. Now you get to live according to the design for which I created you. To work, and I know you don't like this, but work was actually a part of the creational good, not a part of the fall. It's cursed now, clearly it is, right? You work for six days, but you rest. You get a Sabbath day every week. Rest then is fundamental 
to being human. It's not a part of the fall. It's a part of creation. And in the coming kingdom, in the true promised land, in the greater promised land that's awaiting us, we will have full rest. I read an article this week called Bring Back the Sabbath. Uh, and the author of this article is Judith Shulovitz. She came back to her Jew, uh, Jewish faith and Judaism in young adulthood after she left the synagogue in high school. And she lives in New York City, and she has learned the benefit of practicing the rhythm of the Sabbath. She writes this, Most people mistakenly believe that all you have to do to stop working is to not work. The inventors of the Sabbath, she says, understood that it was a much more complicated undertaking than just stopping your work. You cannot downshift casually and easily the way you might slip into bed at the end of a long day. As the cat in the hat says, it is fun to have fun. Do you know the next line? But you have to know how. It's fun to have fun. But you have to know how. It's fun to rest, is it not? But you have to know how. And friends, we don't know how. We do not know how to turn it off. Because even, even when you stop working, even if you said, all right, I'm going to go old school, like an old school Presbyterian, a reformed person, or a traditional uh, Jewish person, and I'm going to start Sabbathing on Sunday. Uh, I'm not going to do anything other than worship God and rest. The problem, and, and by the way, I commend that to you, and, and there's beauty in that, and we should be seeking that kind of Sabbath. However, there's something, the problem she's saying is there is a work going on underneath our work. You can stop working, but the work of your heart never stops, does it? The mental work, the soulish work, the thing in your mind that just never stops, never stops thinking, never stops worrying, never stops the anxiety, and just keeps bringing, even if you take the day off, your heart never stops working. And so she says, it's not that easy. It's not that easy to say, well, I'll quit working and then rest because there's a work under our work. And her article is a beautiful call for us to be mindful. By the way, habits matter. What we do reflects what we love in life and our habits tell us a lot about who we are and our habits will form us. This is why things like liturgy and worship are actually a good thing, even though you may find them boring or repetitious. But like the thing like confessing our sin and hearing an assurance of pardon is good for us because it's teaching us a rhythm of confessing our sins, repenting of our sin. So our habits matter. They form us. But at the end of the day, uh, the truth is we can all do the right habits for rest and not have a rest. Look at the Pharisees who worked and worked and worked and, and slavishly took a Sabbath and yet we're constantly doing the work of judging other people. The third use of this word in our passage is gospel rest. Thank God for this. It says in verse 8 through 10, if Joshua had given them rest, God would not have spoken of another day later on. So then there remains a Sabbath day for the people of God. For whoever has entered God's rest has also rested from his or her works as God did from his own. So the Israelites, the original generation did not make it into the promised land, as we've been mentioning. But Joshua did take a group in. The, the younger generation went into Israel. They entered the land, but the, the land did not provide 
the deep soulish rest that they were longing for. They were surrounded by enemies, for example. Uh, They still are, are they not? Uh, Droughts, famines, exiles. And what the first Joshua was failed or was not able to give them, what this author in Hebrews is saying is, this Joshua can't. And the, 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 the Hebrew word Joshua is the same name that we have for Jesus in the New Testament Greek. So the Sabbath and the land itself were not the thing it promised. It, it, Sabbath is a rest, but it's pointing to a greater rest. Uh, the land was the rest, but it wasn't enough to provide. And it points to a greater rest, a need for a greater peace, a greater shalom. Uh, just like baptism is not, is not the thing that it signifies, but it's, it's showing us, it's a sign, it's pointing beyond itself saying, there's hope, there's cleansing of sin, there's newness of life, there's a covenant that God is making with his people. Now, we'll come back to this, the gospel rest that we so badly need. But before we get there, let's talk about the tempest of rest, the tempest and rest. So in order to get the truer rest that Hebrew talks about, and every person must pass through a tempest of sorts, which is described in this passage, a storm, a darkness of soul, a night of the soul where you have to face some things. It says in Hebrews 4, verses 12 through 13, the word of God is living and it's active. It's sharper than any two-edged sword and piercing to the division of soul and spirit, of joints and of marrow, discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. And no creature is hidden from his sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must all give an account. So verse 12 is a very famous passage. Uh, When I was in college, I met with a guy that like mentored me and uh, we called it discipleship, you know, and people still use that term. But like, so this guy met and we would memorize scripture, a, a lot of scripture. And this was one of the passages that we memorize, Hebrews 4.12. And it's well known. And, it, and it's, it's amazing. But it's amazing to me also is like how, how little this passage is actually understand and, uh, understood in its, its context. So it's much more than just a a memorization passage that we think about the Bible. I mean, did you read it? It's kind of strange, actually. As you read the passage in context, as you're reading it, there's this huge abrupt change in thought. Uh, So for example, we're talking about rest and Sabbath and a warning to not miss out on getting that rest. And then all of a sudden, it starts talking about the word of God as if it's a butcher. (laughs) that's cutting us into pieces. It's kind of strange. What does it mean? What could this mean? It says that the word of God is living. The word of God is living. It's not just a record of the past. It's alive and it continues to speak to us today. And I think actually what this passage is meaning to say is the word of God is not just mere scripture on a page. The word of God is Jesus himself. The word of God, the logos, was with God in the beginning, and in the beginning he was God. He's talking about in John 1, it's referring, I believe, to Christ himself. And, and that the word of God, both the scriptures and Jesus, when, when they come into our life, there's a sense in which we go through a storm, a tempest. 
Hebrews is saying that God's word is like a sharp, double-edged sword that cuts through everything. Right? That's what it says. And as God's word, as God's word cuts you, it reveals, reveals to you your true motives, thoughts, and intentions. And you're utterly naked, it says, and exposed before a holy God having to give an account. Verse 13. Your, your intentions, your motives are all revealed by the word of God, it says. Now, this is hearkening back to Genesis 3 when Adam and Eve ate of the, of the tree. They rebelled against God and they became naked and ashamed. They had been naked and unashamed, gloriously free, living in a perfect relationship with God, living in a perfect relationship with one another, even enjoying, and this is maybe the most complicated, a perfect relationship with themselves, meaning they were at peace with themselves, something none of us have ever enjoyed, but they did briefly for two chapters of the Bible. (laughs) As God's words cut you, it reveals your true motives. They had been totally at rest, satisfied, saw who they were, and it was good. They were able to look at the mirror and go, it's good. But the minute we turn from God and they turn from God, they are instantly ashamed and instantly exposed. And so what did they do in their nakedness? They hid. And we hide, don't we? And we, they cover themselves with fig leaves. They hid, they covered themselves because they felt exposed, because they were. And not just in their physicality, but in their soul, their whole lives, everything was being exposed and they felt it. And they covered themselves with, with fig leaves. And you know what? We do the same thing. We clothe ourselves literally, of course, thank goodness, but metaphorically, we're clothing ourselves with fig leaves all the time and it never works. Our career, our successes, our money, our relationships, our stuff, our kids, our perfect whatever, our attempts to live this perfect life, have a perfect body, have a perfect life, have a perfect marriage, have a perfect kid, have a, you know, good luck. And you you try. It's just covering. It's all fig leaves. And Hebrews says that God's word cuts through all of that. All the ways in which we justify ourselves, all the way we justify our actions, all the way we promote ourselves and defend ourselves, and it lays us naked and exposed, and our true motives and our true intentions are out there, really utterly, utterly exposed. Oh, man. This is terrifying, is it not? (laughs) God's word cuts through all of the self-justification of our lives and exposes us. God's, words, God's word brings out our actual intentions, not just what they say they are, right? And, and we, we tell people all the time, oh, I, I didn't mean that. I didn't mean that. My motives didn't, wasn't that. But like God's word is someday, it says, going to expose all of it for who we are. That's terrifying. All the stuff that goes on in our head. Can you imagine like if everyone could hear what you were thinking? <laughs> all the time or all that your heart was doing it says there's going to be an exposure of all that and you're going to have to give an account for that now who on earth can stand if that's the case if you O oh lord keep a record of sin who can stand who has hope 
All this talk about resting and Sabbath, if this is, the way, if this is true, if we're going to be totally exposed and naked and having to get an account before a holy God, my goodness, who can ever take a day off? Who could ever Sabbath? Who could ever rest? No, you got to keep working, man. You should never, ever stop if this is the case that we're under. Now you see why it's a tempest. It is a tempest. It is a storm. But the way into the promised land, the way into the shalom or the peace and the rest that Jesus is offering is you have to go through this tempest first. You have to face this storm to realize it's that bad. Meaning the gospel is good news, but it's only good news after you have heard some realities that you need Christ, that you profoundly need him. Everyone must pass through this storm to receive the truer and better Joshua, the greater Joshua, and let him lead you to the truer and greater promised land, not here on planet Earth, the kingdom of God. It's coming. We await for it. Hebrews 4.10 says, for whoever has entered God's rest has also rested from his work as God did from his. You know, God stood back after creation and said, it's good, it's so good. So how on the earth, on earth can we do that though? How can we rest from our work if, if God's word cuts us to pieces and exposes us like that? You can rest from your work when you see what the greater Joshua has done for you in the world, not just you, the whole world. This Joshua, this true and greater Joshua experienced a cosmic restlessness, right, on the cross and God's judgment also, so that you don't have to bear that. This Joshua was stripped naked on the cross and exposed so that you will be covered eternally. This Joshua went through the ultimate tempest in order that his people would never face it and would enter the promised land safely. But what Hebrews is wanting us to do is to say, look, without Jesus covering you, this is what the word of God is like. Because Jesus, we believe, we confess in the Apostles' Creed all the time that there's coming a day where he will come to judge the living and the dead. And we will give an account. But through repentance and faith, which Martin Luther said should make should be the, the, the thing that is true for all Christians at all the time in their life. Repentance and faith, repentance and faith. Through repentance and faith, brothers and sisters, that day will look much differently for the children of God who are being led by this Joshua because they receive his righteousness as their own. They are robed in his righteousness. They are clothed in the righteousness of Christ because everything that might curse you fell on Jesus in that ultimate tempest and storm. And so through Christ, through repentance, this is what can be true of you. And I want to quote to you one of my favorite songs from the 90s. (laughs) Okay, we're going back a bit here. It's called The Robe by Wes King. Slow down and just listen to these words and make them your own. Anyone whose heart is cold and lonely, anyone who can't believe, anyone whose hands are worn and empty, come as you are. Anyone whose feet are tired of walking and even lost their will to run, there's a place of rest for your aching soul. Come as you are. Anyone who feels that they're unworthy, 
Anyone who's just afraid, come, sinner, come and receive his mercy. Come as you are. And here's the key part. For the robe is of God that will clothe your nakedness. And the robe is his grace and his righteousness. It's all you need. Come as you are. And would you just receive that, friends, as you think about all all the ways in which you condemn yourself. You don't need God's word to do it. Only you do it yourself. Every time you look in the mirror, every time you fail to keep up the good works, every time you swear you're going to do something and you don't follow through, you, you condemn yourself. The truth is, if the only thing that you got judged by at the end of the age when Christ returned is like the standards that you have set up and saying, good people do this and bad people do that, so I'm going to be a good person. If you just were judged only on the basis of your own rules, you couldn't stand up under that. But Christ covers you in his own righteousness. You're robed in that. And now can you see how that might give you some rest? So that every time you experience shame, you could say, this is not of Christ. This is not okay. I'm going to reject it. Every time you look in the mirror and you start judging yourself from not just the funny stuff we were talking about earlier, like Fitbits and goat yoga, but (laughs) about the real stuff. When you really are condemning yourself, when you really experience self-loathing and sadness and shame and you beat yourself up, you can say, but I am robed in the righteousness of Christ. His righteousness is mine. It's that good. His yoke is easy. His burden is light. You can receive that. And friends, I got to say, I know Hebrews is deep, but it keeps telling us, like, I want you to remember, you're like the people in the wilderness. And I got to say, no matter how much peace I preach to you or to me, in this life, peace, peace, and there is no peace. We're never going to experience a full shalom here. Never. I, I got a three-month sabbatical five years ago. Not that much peace. <laughs> sabbatical is another word for Sabbath. In this life, we don't, we don't experience it, but we're being called to a greater peace that is coming and to experience it in small ways now, but in fullness later. But shalom, you can receive it. You can have a rest right now, even in small ways, as you receive the gospel for yourself and believe it for others too, that We are robed in the righteousness of Jesus Christ. Let's pray. For each and every soul in this house today, Lord, I pray, would you help us to receive this good news, to not fall away, to not turn from it, to have ears to hear that you're offering something so good. And our own hearts already condemn us, Lord. We need your rest. We need the Sabbath that only you can give. And partially now and in fullness later, Lord, we need you. Would you help us to receive that and to begin to lean into that, to live it, to to reject all the the self-loathing and the hatred and and the stuff that we bring into our life because what's true of us is that you have forgiven us, you've loved us, and you are a great high priest who's been sent to save us. We thank you for that in Christ's name. Amen.